in my experience, and I think many people would 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 echo this view in the present, the police department is the most dysfunctional and least accountable department in the city. So the idea of expanding that model to the rest of the city departments on the face of it is really alarming. I mean, that I don't think that is a good idea. This is a real, real, real thing. Real, 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 real thing. None of you have the balls to stop. Stop this. We're in the wedge neighborhood right now, 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 right now. This is the Wedge Live podcast. I'm your host, John Edwards, and my guest today is David Fay, who is a former deputy mayor in Minneapolis. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you. Good to be here. So talk a little bit about, first of all, who you are and when you served as deputy mayor, your your experience, and maybe some other titles and uh, credentials that you might have. Yeah, sure. Um, So uh, most of my career has been in affordable housing development and preservation. I started out uh, as an architect, but pretty quickly got involved when I realized my passion was more around community justice than pure design. So I was director of Seward Redesign in the Seward neighborhood. Um, After 10 years of being on the board, um, realizing that I wanted that to be my day job. Uh, So that was uh, my first uh, professional role as in community planning and development. And then um, that led sort of unexpectedly to uh, a stint as chief of staff, as deputy mayor to R.T. Ryback during his first term, starting in 2002. So shortly after 9-11, to kind of put that in perspective. Um, And we got connected because affordable housing was such an extreme uh, concern then, you know, as now, um, that he was seeking guidance um, from folks who had experience in that field. And we just realized we had a great synergy. And uh, so I joined his team when he took office in January of, of 2002. And I was deputy mayor for his first term, so till 2006, when I moved over to the Department of Community Planning um, and Economic Development that we had merged, created out of the planning department and the former uh, community development agency in order to better align the planning and development uh, arms of the city with the true needs in the city. And I I should mention that we're here to talk about the Strong Mayor Charter Amendment. I forgot to mention that at the beginning of the show, which is, (laughs) is something that's been very frustrating to me as, uh, as someone who's lived through the past year and a half and and suddenly the Charter Commission comes up with this idea to fix the city and it's to uh, to put more power in the mayor's office for the city's non-police departments. Like mm-hmm. where they didn't want to address the police department. They figured the things that went wrong over the last year and a half had to do with the non-police departments. It's frustrating to me because that feels very wrong. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> this feels obviously wrong. feels like we're having the wrong conversation entirely when it comes yeah. to question one. I agree. And I think it's because, frankly, that hasn't been an entirely honest conversation. I think the, the Charter Commission in proposing this has sort of wrapped it in the language of good government. Um, but I think, really, um, it's a direct response to the council's initiative to reform the police department by expanding it and creating a more holistic uh, department of public safety, which, as we know, the council or the the, uh, the charter commissioners blocked on its first uh, attempt last last year, and then the next thing they did after blocking that was to resurrect this proposal that has come up from time to time in the history of the city to be more like St. Paul, to, to create a strong mayor structure. But it's quite clear to me, and and uh, and I would say to folks that we've been talking with, um, I should say I'm uh, a member of Isaiah and Faith in Minnesota, which is a very broad coalition of folks um, all across the city uh, who have been actively engaged in conversations with, by now, I think we've had 15,000 individual conversations um, to find out, you know, really what do the people of Minneapolis think about all of this? And and uh, what the people of Minneapolis think is not that there's a problem with the organization of City Hall, but, there's a, but that there's a problem with the inability to actually move forward with meaningful reform of the police department. Yeah, and you're you're very interesting to me. I saw you uh, at the candidate forum on Saturday, mm-hmm. where you debated uh, Walter Rockenstein, who I think mm-hmm. is a former Republican City Council member from like the '70s and '80s. And yeah. uh, you know, there's a lot of former former this, former that. You got former mayors, former department heads who have come out mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. have been very strenuous in their advocacy for question one. You're somebody mm-hmm. who worked in the mayor's office, and yet yeah. you aren't out here telling us the mayor needs more power to get things done. Are you unusual in that regard? Would you say most people who held positions similar to yours would agree with you? Or or how? Why? That's, that's a fair question. Um, so I, I wouldn't say I'm unusual, unusual in this respect. I, I think what many people are observing about kind of the alignment currently of um, current and former elected officials uh, is that there seems to be a kind of a division between the, the old guard, the DFL establishment, people who've been part of the system for a long time, and the newly emerging more progressive um, uh, people in in leadership in city government and in the Twin Cities in regional government and even national, we could say, right, our, our national representatives. So I think that's what it's really about. I think it's more about sort of the old guard and the new guard. And the old guard has had this kind of um, mantra about how difficult it is to get things done. Um, and my experience in the mayor's office was, yes, it's challenging to get things done in a representative democracy where you have differing views, and that's the way it's supposed to be. But when you have a powerful vision and a, and a, um, a strong mayor individual 
a mayor who is a strong leader, um, that you can actually get wonderful things done. I, I mentioned in passing that we succeeded in merging the planning department with the city development agency, which people had talked about for 20 years and no one, and no one thought was possible because of all of the entrenched interests. So I think this idea that you can't get things done, uh, there are 14 bosses, is kind of a dated understanding of city government um, and, uh, and pretty extremely overstated. Yeah, because I don't know, we've had this uh this government structure for a century or more. It's been a mm-hmm. long time. They've been trying to change it for a long time. Minneapolis has a yeah. long history of people trying to concentrate power in the mayor's office. We've yeah. got a pretty pretty good city, I think, of accomplished some <laughs> things. Uh, mm-hmm. We definitely have challenges like a lot of other cities do. But uh, it mm-hmm. feels uh, Paul Ostro uh, wrote a thing in the Star Tribune where he talked about uh, his advocacy in 2009-ish for mm-hmm. for a similar uh, strong mayor proposal mm-hmm. and how he had heard from people at the time, you can't do this. It's going to take a crisis for <laughs> us to get something like this through. And I don't think mm-hmm. he intended it to mean he was, we're trying to take advantage of a crisis, but that's how it came across to me. Like, mm-hmm. It feels irrelevant to the historical moment, the moment we're in right now, and uh, you're you're trying to use a crisis unrelated to this to push through a thing that you've wanted to do forever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the other thing that I would say I can speak very personally to is the downside. I I would even say the dark side of the sort of the strong mayor model, at least as it has played out in Minneapolis in the example of the police department, which is the one department that already has that model, right? Um, So in my experience, and I think many people would would echo this view in the present, the police department is the most dysfunctional and least accountable department in the city. So the idea of expanding that model to the rest of the city departments on the face of it is really alarming. I mean, that I don't think that is a good idea, given the failed history of that model in the city of Minneapolis. And to be specific about it, what happens in that model is that very important discussions about public policy, about the actual impact of that department on the people of Minneapolis, happen only behind closed doors in the mayor's office, with the mayor and his chief of staff and a couple of senior deputies of the police chief and the chief, but the council is out of the loop. They don't even know what's happening. And certainly the people of Minneapolis who the council are elected to represent don't have access. So there's no transparency. There's no real opportunity for the, for the people who've elected their representatives to make sure that their representatives voices are considered in these really critical policy conversations. Yeah, you find out about the latest uh, MPD policy change on the TV news. That's where that's right. we'll announce it. Yeah, that's right. So, so there must have been a time when you were working in the mayor's office where you were very frustrated with the city council and you thought, gee, it would be nice if we just had a strong mayor system, we could bypass <laughs> these people. Uh, 
I know I'm frustrated with uh, Lisa Goodman, who will meddle. In, I'm sure she meddles in a lot of places, but I'm personally frustrated by the, the public works department and street reconstructions. Mm-hmm. She will basically go in and try to try to get staff, not even to, to put up their, their recommendation on a specific street, just get them to bury it. So that it never gets a chance for a vote. She's basically trying to run the public works department. So I don't know. I guess that's two questions. One, did you ever feel like, gee, I wish I could cut out the city council? And uh, how do we how do we stop people like Lisa Goodman? How do we end Lisa Goodman once and for all? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Where to begin? So I think what you've described is exactly the problem, that there are and there probably always have been individual council members who overstep. Um, and I believe the the corrective for that is is the election process. Um, but but in many cases, I think the general public isn't aware because they're not paying close enough attention to what's happening in city hall of those dynamics and who is who is you know at fault. Um, so you know I think that's one thing. Um, it's important to kind of shine some light on those dynamics when there are individual council members who consistently behave that way so that the people who elected them know that and can consider other choices. Um, so that's that's one thing. I think the council members could hold each other accountable more than they do. Um, I can remember uh, sitting in the council chambers at moments, well, the moment I'm remembering right now was at one point, council member Goodman essentially attacked a staff person in a public meeting that was being televised in a way that was really disturbing. And nobody on the dais held her accountable. No one said anything. No one said, hey, wait a minute, that's not appropriate. So I think that's another check in the system. I think the council members have some responsibility to hold each other accountable, especially in public forums like that. Um, yeah. But, you know, to your original, the original part of your question about was it ever frustrating and, you know, inefficient? Yes, it was often frustrating and inefficient. But inefficiency is not the highest value of representative government. Representation is the highest value. And as I think most, most people are aware or are becoming more aware there's a significant difference between who elects citywide seats, citywide offices like the mayor, and who elects council members. Citywide offices tend to be historically elected by a whiter, wealthier um, group of neighborhoods around sort of the southwest uh, sides of the city, which means those are the people to whom the mayor is most accountable. Whereas council members, as we know, are elected locally and each neighborhood has its own character. And most of the diversity and relatively underrepresented folks in the city um, are not in that in that fertile crescent. So that's, I think, another dimension of this proposed uh, mayoral control uh, amendment that is really disturbing because it concentrates political power even further in the hands of the people where it is already probably uh, more concentrated than it should be at the expense of everybody else. Yeah. People talk about the 
trade-off between uh, efficiency and efficiency and blocking progress. But the flip side is you can get very efficient at blocking progress. Like efficiency right. doesn't mean efficiency in service of progress necessarily. That's right. That's right. And I think what we're seeing, you know, is that that, that sort of um, DFL establishment block is literally organizing to block progress on public safety um, and to block the effectiveness, the power of the more the most diverse and progressive council that the people of Minneapolis have ever elected, and that's not a coincidence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, what's good about our government structure? People talking about how bad it is all the time, and the fourteen <laughs> bosses. Why defend it? Why did you feel compelled to speak against question one? What What is the good stuff we mm-hmm. can do in Minneapolis that other cities can't do because they've they've got a different model? That's a really great question. You know. People talk a lot about transparency. Um, the thing about transparency is you can have a really open process, but if no one's looking, um, it doesn't seem that way. The general public doesn't feel like they know what's going on. So if I could like snap my fingers uh, and make the system work better or, or make the system really bear the fruit of the way it's organized, which is to be open and transparent, it would be to have people pay more attention all of the time, not just during election years. Um, you'll hear, for instance, just, um, and this goes a little bit to the second ballot question, but there's all this rhetoric about how there's no plan for the new par- Department of Public Safety. Well, yeah, actually there is a plan. It was presented to the council in a public meeting that was televised in May, but the general public didn't know and didn't tune in and hasn't seen it. So the perception is there's no plan. Um, That's not true. The system actually works better at that kind of level than we think it does. But we don't know that if we're not actively engaged ourselves and paying attention. What do we risk losing by shifting power to the mayor? We've talked about that a little bit, I think. But what's the biggest thing we lose? So... The biggest thing we lose is the Twin Cities are already the metro area with the largest racial disparities in the country. By consolidating political power further among this traditional, more conservative end of the DFL and the whiter, more affluent part of the city, what we risk is making those disparities worse. And that I think we can't afford to risk because of what's happening historically. The city is becoming wonderfully more diverse. Um, even in the time I've lived here, you know, since the early 80s, it's been really dramatic and amazing to see what uh, the, the, the influence of all of this global um, immigration on our city. But if we aren't able to actually support and include that diversity in how we make decisions as a society, um, those people are going to fail. And if those people fail, we're all going to fail because they are the economic engine of the future. The, The workforce looks like them more and more and more. 
So it's really, I think it's our economic future and everything that flows from our economic future that's at risk here. Have you heard the Charter for Change? People talking about uh, last summer, council members giving orders to police and that causing confusion. That seems, so that hasn't been reported in the news anywhere. I have only heard it from people advocating for strong mayor, as if that caused the chaos last summer. And it seems unbelievable to me because I can't imagine any anyone involved in the police department thinks that they answer to the city council. Right. But I, does that does that seem believable to you? No, it doesn't. Um, and it's based on a, I think, a, some phony or faulty thinking about what should happen in a crisis. Elected officials are not experts on on public safety, and that's not why we elect them. They're certainly not experts in crisis management. That's not why we elect them. It doesn't make sense in a crisis for the head of the police department to look to the council or even, frankly, the mayor to figure out what to do in that moment. That's why we hire professionals in the city. The mayor should be looking to the police chief to say, help me understand what the most humane but effective response is in this moment. And if the police chief can't come up with it or doesn't make it happen, that person needs to be fired and replaced. But the idea that that the public should expect elected officials to like suddenly charge in and take control in a crisis is frankly kind of ridiculous. It's it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I don't I don't think the city council wants to manage hostage situations or active shooter situations. <laughs> I don't, no. I don't. I don't think that's anyone's motivation here, right? It, and it also goes to kind of the broader misunderstanding about what really is the power of the elected officials relative to the departments. The power of the elected officials is very simple: it's to hire and fire department heads. That's it. Beyond that, the power of of the council and the mayor is to establish policy and goals for the city and a budget for the city within which the departments need to operate. But nowhere in the current charter does it say that that either the mayor or the city council members should be involved in any way in day-to-day decision-making in departments. That's not the plan. And we have policies like the complete complete streets policy with regard to public works. And uh, I think it's called renter first with the with the regulatory services department, which is designed to, so complete streets is about transportation and prioritizing mm-hmm, bikes, mm-hmm. pedestrians, buses over uh, private automobiles. And then renter first is about keeping people when you're, when you're enforcing the housing code, uh, you're trying to keep renters in their homes as a first priority, basically. Right. And the, ca- the council has developed those po- policies and said, okay, uh, various departments, you must follow these. These are our goals and how you should operate. And like if uh, if strong mayor passes, what happens to policies like that? Is it essentially like presidents coming in? You know, you've got rescinding executive orders, issuing new ones. Do policies mm. go out the window with mm. each new mayor? Yeah. Well, that's a great question. Um, so let's be really specific about some of the language in this proposed mayoral control strong mayor amendment. Basically, what this does is it makes the the mayor the gatekeeper of access to city staff by the council. So um, 
I don't have the language right in front of me at the moment, but I think I can almost quote it verbatim. There's a there's a line that says, with respect to the council's legislative duties, and the proponents of this will say, this strengthens the council as a leg- legislative body. It'll be great. Everybody will be clear about their roles, and they'll be great legislators. This line says, with respect to its legislative work, the council must have the consent of the mayor to engage with city staff. Right. So that that's putting up a wall. That's putting up a wall. It's a huge overreaction to the occasional, maybe persistent, but you know, limited cases of council members who meddle in a in an inappropriate way. It's a wildly overbuilt reaction to that because basically it makes it impossible for the council to effectively develop policy that really reflects the concerns of their constituents unless the mayor agrees to let them do that on a particular point. I remember when the Charter Commission was first talking about this, uh, like late last year or early this year, and mm-hmm. they were very careful about not calling it a strong mayor charter amendment because of the politics. I was listening in on their their uh, mm-hmm. work, work group meetings. And mm-hmm. and now we, we've transitioned to the point where some of the advocates are calling it a strong council, like a strong mayor, strong council, <laughs> which is completely there's, bizarre. You're, you're taking yeah, power away from the council and you're going to you're going to frame it as a strong council thing. Yeah, that's mar- that's purely marketing language. It has nothing to do with what the amendment would actually change. Another argument you hear is St. Paul works this way, Duluth works this way, the federal government mm. works this way. Uh, I I don't find that persuasive because I don't happen to think like there's a lot of things that happen at, at, in St. Paul and at the capital, the state capital, and like D- Washington D.C., yeah. where I'm like this doesn't work at all. I don't like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, yeah. So two things about that. Um, you know how well the city of St. Paul works and how well the city of Minneapolis works depends a whole lot more on who we elect than what the city charters say. The city charter of St. Paul is much simpler and shorter with respect to these issues of um, uh, who does what, the mayor and the council. It does not have this kind of prohibitive language that prevents the council from engaging the experts that we hire at the city to advise them around public policy without the consent of the mayor. It has no such language. So it's it's even though it's um, described as a strong mayor system, it's more collaborative than what's being proposed in Minneapolis. Um, yeah, so I think that's also kind of a red herring. It's it, it, it's um, the other thing that that just from my experience in the mayor's office was really striking to me is we would go annually to the council of mayors meeting, national council of mayors, and there is virtually no consistency about how cities are organized around this country. It's it's really crazy, um, and the proponents of this want to sort of present it as if this is somehow the norm, you know, that we're just, Minneapolis is the only city that isn't doing it right. And that's crazy. Every city is very unique in this respect. I, I've heard they don't even teach it at the Humphrey School. They don't teach Minneapolis <laughs> at the Humphrey School. It's it's a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know. Is that a is that a good argument in your mind? I don't I don't find that compelling. That Minneapolis has to be taught in schools for it to be legitimate. I I don't even know what that means. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't even know if it's true. Maybe they do teach us at the. I'm sure after this uh, this whole election year, talking about government structure, maybe they will start teaching Minneapolis at the Humphrey School. I don't know. Yeah. Okay, let's see where I am here. Uh, we're we're being very efficient here, David. Uh, I usually I usually go an hour, but we've covered so much ground. Uh, let's talk about question two. Okay. Why why is it a good? And I don't. Maybe you're not prepared to talk about question two. Are you prepared? Oh sure. Okay. Why is it a good thing for the city council to have some policy control over MPD? This is kind of the flip side of the strong mayor thing. Were you trying to make MPD more like how the city operates with respect to all the departments now? Yeah. Uh, so why, why is it a good thing? So I I would say what's what's most important um, about the part of question two that relates to who's in control is that it would make the the city the the public safety department like all of the other departments. And what's most important about all of the other departments is the transparency, is that whatever is being discussed about um, you know, the Department of Public Works, and if this amendment two passes, then about the Department of Public Safety, would be discussed openly in open council meetings, in open committee meetings that are televised and people can attend, um, not behind closed doors in the mayor's office. So I think that's the that's the most fundamental thing that's important here is to make sure that the, especially these discussions of public safety, which are so critical to every neighborhood's health and well-being, need to be happening in a more transparent way. Can we really expect uh, the city council to be able to accomplish things that the that mayoral control has not traditionally? Well, so. So this is where we have to talk about what really have been the barriers to change, to reform of the police department. Um, and the the structure of Minneapolis government is not the primary barrier to reform in any way. Um, it, it has exacerbated the problem by moving discussions of public safety policy and performance behind closed doors. That doesn't help. But the real barriers to reform of the Minneapolis Police Department were written into the charter by the Minneapolis Police Federation to protect itself back in 1961. So by locking in the number of officers that the city is required to employ and the revenue stream that supports that number of officers, the charter, the language in the charter now basically cuts the city off at the knees in terms of negotiating power um, and the ability to actually manage change with real consequences um, for the department. And, and so that in combination with some state laws, which also need to be looked at, um, that people will talk about, well, why is it that officers who are fired then end up getting back on the force? There are also some, there's also some state law involved that's not helpful. But that basic um, set of barriers that the police federation was successful in building into the city charter um you know 60 years ago um is is one of the main 
barriers to reform. And that's why that's why we begin with the Charter Amendment when we talk about police reform, because we have to begin with changing the Charter. It has to, it's the necessary first step. Do you think there are any recent mayors who would uh, <clears throat> would come out against question one? Who would, if you talk to them privately, would think, this is a bad idea, I don't like this? Or do you think generally, you, if you're coming from that perspective as a mayor or a former mayor, you're just naturally inclined to be against uh, <clears throat> against this idea. Yeah i I wouldn't try to speak for anyone on that. Um, what I would say is, uh, when when you hear mayors talk about how difficult it is to work with the council, um, it's another version of the efficiency argument, right? It's like. I would like my job as the mayor to be easier. <laughs> right. And so, and it would be simpler for me if I they weren't always clamoring in my ears about these things. Well, mm-hmm. yes, it would. Um, but that again is not the spirit. Those are not the values that underlie our form of government. Um, and if you're not up for that level of debate and engagement, you maybe the mayor is not the right job for you. Yeah. Did you read the? Charter Commission's uh, report where they did interviews with department heads uh, anonymously, which kind of mm-hmm. makes sense because they're you don't want to have uh, Lisa Goodman or somebody else coming after you because he said the wrong thing. But right. Uh, so one of the things I kind of assume about it is they want to make their job easier. They they really mm-hmm. would like to just I just want to deal with the mayor. I don't want to deal with the city council. My job becomes so much easier. And I think we all, all can relate to wanting our jobs to be easier. Sure. Your job being easier is not the same thing as providing better quality government for the people of Minneapolis. And so I'm not yeah. in, so I, I'm not sure. Maybe the Charter Commission only talked with people who we're sympathetic to to question one, but maybe it is the case that the vast majority of department heads are frustrated with how the system works. Do you have any sense of of what that? Because you, yeah. you work for the mayor's office, what's your sense? Yeah, my my sense of that is that um, there are. Well, this is maybe a. I guess all generalizations are overly simplified, right? <laughs> but I'll just say. Um, I think, uh, department heads who come to arrive at the city with, uh, an agenda, a way they want to manage some stuff they want to get done, um, are likely to be frustrated, uh, by, especially if they haven't been a city department head before, (laughs) um, by what it takes to actually get things done. It's not easy to, um, especially to make significant change um, within city departments because of the whole construct of union contracts and civil service rules and the list of things you can't do is much longer than the things list of things you can. But those rules are all there for reasons. They all were created to protect someone, to keep something bad from happening. So if you're not really the kind of person who is willing to roll up your sleeves and just deal with it, um, this probably isn't the job for you, right? If you want to work in a more streamlined bureaucracy, you know, 
go work for Facebook. But this is not this is not what city government is. Yeah. So I'm I'm talking to Paul Ostro tomorrow. He's the former uh-huh. city council president. Maybe you worked with him. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Give me some advice. What would you ask a question one proponent? You know, real stumper. Hmm. Boy. Well, you know, I've already said that my main concern about um, this amendment, the strong mayor amendment, is that it further concentrates power with essentially a diminishing demographic in the city at the expense of where we're going as a city, the city we're becoming, which is this much more diverse city than we've ever had before. So I would ask Paul, given the provisions in this amendment that essentially kind of build a firewall between the council and the uh, the senior staff with whom they should be making policy, how do you see that working? How do you see that working well? Um, and are, And is he concerned? that this is going to disenfranchise not only council members, but the people they represent. Okay. So that, that, that'd be one question I would ask Paul. That's a good Let one. Let me think about that second. Um, so I guess the other thing I would, this isn't really a question for Paul, but the other observation I would make is that, um, it was thinking about Paul that reminded me of this. There are people who just sort of like a more orderly world, you know, sort of are more comfortable in a more ordered setting. Um, that was my impression of Paul. Um, that was my impression of Barrett Lane, who served at the same time. He was just a very organized sort of person, you know. Barrett Lane, is um, that the emergency management guy? Uh, or am I thinking of somebody else? Guy. I'm not sure what he's up to now. Is that what you're saying? Who's in a, that role now? Yeah, sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, that name seems oh, could be. Anyway, I just Barrett also came to mind. So, I think yeah, people like the, Paul. He's the director of the Office of Emergency Management. Okay, well, interesting. <laughs> okay, he would be an interesting interview too as a former yeah. council member. Um, but I think people like Paul and Barrett are inclined to be frustrated by the scrappiness of the, the representative part of city government. Um, and would like it not to be so chaotic just because of who they are. And, you know, I can respect that. But again, I would say, you know, if that's, if that's who you are, you, you, you might want to think about whether you really want to leap into that particular, um, system because it's, uh, it's, it's beauty is in its diversity and its representative qualities. And that is going to bring up lots of conflict, especially in a city that is changing as fast as our city is changing. Do you know Trudy Maloney? Does that name ring a bell? I recognize the name, but I couldn't place it. She used to work uh, for Mayor Fraser and now works. uh, I think she like coordinates uh, St. Paul's city council operations. So she went from the mayor's office Hmm. in Minneapolis to uh, working with the city council in St. Paul. she said there wasn't a, there's a lot of times working for the mayor of Minneapolis. You wish, you wish you had a strong mayor system. She went to St. Paul 
And she finally can appreciate the beauty of the Minneapolis system because there there are policies that we have in Minneapolis that are a decade or more ahead of when they were mm-hmm. developed in St. Paul. So I, I, I found that to be a compelling argument when she testified uh, or, mm-hmm. or offered her opinions to the charter commission a couple of yeah. months ago. Yeah. You know, the other thing that I think is just important to keep in mind here is that we wouldn't be having these conversations. The ballot questions one and two would not be on the ballot if we hadn't been through the year and a half we've been through with the pandemic and with George Floyd's murder and the, you know, local, national, global uprising around issues of, of justice and equity. So this is a really historic moment. And I think everybody feels that. And, and I think what happens when, when, when emotions are heightened is that people kind of, uh, maybe get a little more extreme, you know, than they would otherwise be in terms of their rhetoric, in terms of their positions. And I think that's what we're seeing happening. I think we're seeing in this moment um, of enormous change and high, a sense of high consequences that the progressive side of the picture, you know, got super extreme there briefly and then realized they needed to dial it back to stay in conversation with people. And similarly on the more conservative side of the DFL still. So we're, you know, we're still in the world of democratic politics in Minneapolis. I think that has also kind of intensified. It's like, we need to get control of this. We need to get control of this because it's going crazy. Right. And obviously neither of those impulses is very helpful. Right. What we need is to be able to move forward together. Um, And I believe that question one does not do that. I think question one divides us more um, and will intensify that conflict um, and make it less likely that we'll be able to come to good communal decision-making. And similarly, I think question number two moves us in the right direction. It basically takes something that has been very controlled and kind of shut down behind closed doors and opens it up to the community so that the community can actually have a voice in how it evolves from here. Do you think that uh, the average, like the, the person who attends like uh, neighborhood association meetings and is is very cranky about streets and new housing and just, you know, your, your typical like anti-progressive voter in Minneapolis knows, knows what they are getting into with this strong mayor thing. Cause they tend to want their council member to like step That's in right. and stop this thing. That's keep right. it from happening. I want you to yeah. stop it. Like they're going to find out eventually the thing you voted for in 2021 uh, means your council member can't do those sorts of things anymore. I think that's exactly Right. And, you know, in that respect, I think it sort of echoes national politics, you know, of, of recent years where sort of the, the heated national rhetoric um, sort of sweeps people up. Um, and then they realize that the things that are actually being implemented are, are damaging to them. Okay. Well, I want to ask you about you, David Fay, as we come to the <laughs> end here. 
So what are you up to politically? I don't know you at all. I just saw you on Saturday at this this, oh, uh, yeah. this forum. What are you up to politically and your your involvement, uh, your volunteering, Faith in Minnesota? What do you yeah. do? Yeah. Uh, this is the focus uh, for me right now. I uh, Really, because of what I said a minute ago about believing that this is a, tr- a truly historic opportunity to change some things that have needed to change for a long time. And I think if we blow it um, and settle for the status quo, we're really going to regret it. And we won't have this opportunity again, maybe in my lifetime. So I feel that's where my motivation comes from. It's like, oh my God, if we can't do this now, um, you know, let's just give up and turn out the lights. You know, <laughs> this is this is the opportunity. Um, so that's that's what has really brought me frankly, kind of back into political life. Um, since I left City Hall, uh, I've gone back to my roots, which is working in the nonprofit sector and um, have been advising and leading a whole series of organizations over the last, whatever it's been, 15 years, um, without uh, much of a political profile. And that has suited me just fine. To be honest, I don't love politics, but I'm willing to get political when I believe it matters. And right now, I believe it matters. I think if you loved politics, you would have gone into, you would have become a lobbyist, right? You would have done that, in that transition. Yes. So after, you know, after I was in City Hall for seven years, and I got to a point when I realized, oh, either I need to become one of these people. (laughs) (laughs) Or I need to kind of get back to who I really am and yeah. who I really am is more that kind of on the ground, getting important stuff down person. So I made a conscious choice about that. So are you, you're devoting your political energy entirely to question one? Is that really? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't, don't think I said that, but um, no, I, I'm devoting it to working with Isaiah and faith in Minnesota because okay. I believe they have, really the best reach right now um, into the emerging population of, uh, of Minneapolis. They started their organizing with their barbershop and black congregation cooperative and their Muslim coalition. They had conversations with over 600 neighbors of color early in their planning work to, to, to form, help them form um, positions and figure out where to, you know, how to organize, where to move. Um, and I think all of all three of these uh, amendments are crucial to our well-being as a city. My most of my nonprofit, you know, last twenty years of my career has been adjacent to, if not square on, the issue of affordable housing. So the third one is just as important to me and important to the city, I think. Um, but I think because of my location as a former deputy mayor. I have more leverage uh, at the moment around questions one and two. And so that's also been part of my own personal reflection is to figure out where can I actually have the most constructive impact on behalf of the community. Yeah. As someone who is not religious at all, uh, I moved to Minneapolis (laughs) in 2012 and you, you moved to Minneapolis and you realize some of the most progressive uh, activists or, or groups in the city Mm -hmm. are the religious groups. Mm-hmm. pushing for the good stuff, which is unusual when you come, you're used to politics and other places, the religious yes. groups are, are not the, the people doing the good work. 
Yeah. Well, and this is one of the reasons we are a center of really well-supported and welcomed immigration in the country because of progressive churches that have made it their mission to welcome and help educate and house and acclimate people from all over the world. Um, and yeah, that is, it's, that's, this is a very unique community in that respect. Absolutely. It's very striking. So here's the final question, David Fay. Yeah. I asked, I asked this to all the guests. What, this has been a tough, a tough a year and a half, a tough election year. It, mm-hmm. You can get down. Things can get you down sometimes. What are mm-hmm. three three things that are making you happy or that you could recommend to other people that would uh, brighten their day? It could be a walk in a specific place, a book, mm. a movie, a video game, some music you're listening to, an experience. What can you recommend to people? Um, well, speaking of religion, um, I'm Buddhist myself, and uh, I uh, I joke about it. Um, but it was my experience in City Hall that drove me to meditation and yoga <laughs> because it was so stressful. Are you talking about Lisa realized... Goodman? Are you talking about Lisa Goodman right now? <laughs> I realized I needed some ability to ground myself that I didn't have. And uh, that was a really positive turning point in my life. Um, and uh, so, number one, I would say, Make sure you have uh, some sort of a grounding practice. I mean, that could be many things. Maybe some people are long-distance runners, and that does it for them, right? It doesn't have to have a particular label. But I would say, if you're gonna if you're gonna survive, you need to be grounded, and you need something that that um, feels solid and sustaining to you that doesn't depend on what happened that day. So that's one thing. Um, I will say my experience working with Isaiah and Faith in Minnesota, um, I've, I don't know how many hours I've spent so far on phone calls um, with people, has been really inspiring and kind, has, has kind of re, reassured uh, and just kind of reignited my excitement and my faith in our democratic process. Because when, when you talk with someone you've never met before, and say, hey, you know, I'm calling to, to talk with you about these three amendments because I know it's confusing and there's a lot of information around and, you know, can I be helpful? And you get into conversations with perfect strangers. They are so engaged and appreciative and interested that it, it just reminds me that this system, this remarkable system that we have, sorry, it's making me choke up, but it works. It, it actually works, but it only works when we get out of our shells and out of our echo chambers, right? So mm-hmm. that I think that's a big part of the magic is find a way to engage that gets you out of your echo chamber. Um, and you will be, you will be pleasantly surprised. And I find myself because of that experience, feeling really hopeful actually about the election. Um, I, I, I think we're heading in the right direction because people are learning. They're, they're getting through all of the confusion and the intentionally misdirecting messaging around all this stuff. And when they see what's actually going on, they get it and they feel moved to get on board and take action. And that's just, that's really inspiring to me. Are we not going to get a third one? I wanted to. Oh, what's the, 
Uh, third thing that remind me of the question. Uh, things <laughs> that are making things that are making you happy. Yeah, we we yeah. needed three things. You you have made me or more optimistic about this election talking to you here today. So I agree with your number two. It's very personal. I but um, my husband, my sort of inner circle of passionate humans who are similarly engaged in caring about the world and and working for something that isn't just for them, you know, that is for the sake of the community. That is, um, I couldn't do this without them. Uh, and I think that's the nature of it. You know, I think this kind of work um, has to happen communally. I think that's what it's all about. And the connections that we make with each other and the bonds that we create when we work together towards something we care about are really strong and sustain us. Thank you, David Fay. This has been the Wedge Live Podcast. I'm your host, John Edwards, and my guest has been David Fay, who is, you know, working his heart out to uh, make Minneapolis a better place and is also a former deputy mayor under R.T. Ryback. Uh, Thank you, David. Thank you. This is a real, real thing. Real, 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 real thing. None of you have the balls to stop. Stop this. We're in the wedge neighborhood right now, 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 right now.